This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. For our ongoing series, Closing the Gap, we are digging into disparities in mental health care. Who has it? Who doesn't? And how the pandemic is changing the way we think and talk about these issues. Yesterday, we looked at the mental health needs in Chicago. Today, we look back on one of the most controversial moves in recent memory. Former Mayor Rahm Emanuel's decision to close half of the city's 12 mental health clinics in 2012. We'll also introduce you to people who stepped up to fill that void and reach all families across the region. Back in the 1990s, Chicago had 19 public mental health clinics across the city. But then-Mayor Richard M. Daley closed seven of those facilities due to budget cuts. At the time, he blamed the state. The state of Illinois funds those centers. We did not cut. They have cut state mental health facilities all over the state. That is state money. Underline that. S-A-T-E, money. It's called state money. (laughs) Jump ahead in time to 2012, and Mayor Rahm Emanuel announced he would be shutting down half of the city's 12 remaining clinics. The move sent shockwaves across the city. People were very concerned. Other Chicagoans who were not directly affected recognized um, that that was very problematic. Groups like Southside Organizing for Power or Stop Chicago fought back against the clinic closures. Matt Ginsburg-Jakel is a Stop Chicago board member. He was arrested during a protest at City Hall. We knew it was going to take a big and a public fight uh, in order to stop him from closing those clinics. We delivered uh, letters to his office when he was just still when he was running as a candidate. We tried to get meetings with him from day one uh, and we're stonewalled. We did petitions of thousands, tens of thousands of people signing, saying don't close these mental health clinics. And then after he announced the closures of the clinics, uh, we began a much more visible campaign uh, that started out with protests and press conferences and ended up with sit-ins and eventually the occupation uh, of one of the clinics just before it was about to close. Despite public pressure, the city moved forward with its plans. Advocates say that hurt hundreds of at-risk residents and led to more people becoming homeless, more people in the criminal justice system, and other repercussions. It was disastrous, and it was really, really heartbreaking to watch it closely. You know, when you're organizing around an issue like this, you form really deep relationships with people directly affected who are the leadership of that campaign. You know, of the 23 or so of us that were uh, arrested when we did that clinic occupation, for example, about 16 or 17 of them were people on the brink of losing their services, and two of those people are no longer with us today. But it's also the thousands of people who have gone through, who have had to lose jobs, who have had flare-ups and anxiety, who have depression, who's, whose roles in their families has been compromised as caretakers. Enter Mayor Lightfoot. We will accelerate the development of a trauma-informed city, starting with repairing our broken mental health safety net. Lightfoot campaigned on promises to reopen the shuttered clinics. Instead, she's boosting funding at private and nonprofit centers and doubling the city's mental health budget. To help us combat these challenges and give our communities the support they need, We have created a new package of mental health supports encompassing three key areas. First, community-based treatment. Second, telemedicine. And third, self-care resources. After Lightfoot took office in May 2019, 
her public health director created a new plan to improve mental health access on the south and west sides of the city. So no matter who you are, where you live, what your insurance, immigration, language, employment status is, if you've regularly gotten mental health care, you've never even called a helpline. If you live in Chicago, there is mental health support for you, there is care for you, and we at CDPH, with every one of these partners, want you to know that, and we want you to reach out. But critics say it's not enough. They want the mayor to honor her campaign pledge to reopen shuttered clinics. A group of progressive aldermen voted against the mayor's 2021 pandemic budget because it keeps the mental health clinics closed. They also criticized the mayor for including police in its new crisis response model. Meanwhile, advocates continue to call on Lightfoot to invest in mental health. We see just broadening alliances of groups realizing that mental health is not a separate issue. Mental health is the glue that connects all of our issues. Evictions are a mental health issue. Police brutality is a mental health issue. The pandemic is a mental health issue, etc. And that an issue of that scale, the connective tissue amongst all issues, requires a collective response, requires integration into all of our campaign, and requires public solutions. So how can people help? Matt Ginsburg-Jakel, the advocate that we've been hearing from, he has these suggestions. If you're not in an organization, join an organization. If you're in an organization, point push for this uh, to be part of the work of your organization, whether that's a union, a church community, a community organization. Uh, you know, the front line of this issue right now is the treatment, not trauma. People calling their aldermen and, and urging them to support this treatment, not trauma initiative. Let's turn now to Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart. He was among those who raised concerns about the decision to close six of the city's 12 mental health clinics and the impact that it could have on his jail population. Sheriff Dart, welcome to Reset. Hey, thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Cook County Jail is considered to be one of the largest mental health providers in the nation, right? Roughly 30% of the jail's population deals with mental illness. I hate to correct you so early in the interview, we are just a hair under 50% now. Oh, wow. So so tell us, how did we get here? Uh, you know, I often tell people, if you think about it for a second, we will, like everybody, will be judged by history at some point, and, you know, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, take your pick. And if someone looks back and say, well, how was it that you treated people that have a illness that they don't choose to have? And you look at them and say, well, God, back in those days, we just threw them in jails and prisons. People say, oh, my God, you had to be just horrible people back then. They had to be just rotten. And I often tell people, we are. I mean, this is something that I'd love to tell you is some dirty little secret that no one knows about. But whether it's myself or these incredible advocates, we've been talking about this forever. And yet the constant refrain is that people are going to get around to things, that they're going to carve around the edges. At the meantime, the mentally ill are populating jails and prisons all around the country, not unique here. And the one statistic I always tell people, it just blows me away. In 44 of the 50 states, the largest mental health provider is either a prison or a jail. So this is endemic throughout the entire country, and it's horrible, it's outrageous, and as I say, should be a stain on our generation forever. You've said that you came to your breaking point on this issue several years ago. Tell us about that. I just... 
I remember clearly walking through the the jail somewhat early on. I, I lose track of time at this point in my life, but uh, and looking to myself and really, if I closed my eyes and didn't know where I was at that moment, I would think I would be in a traditional mental health hospital. Uh, there was individuals rolled up in blankets. There was people wandering around rooms. There were people clearly suffering all sorts of the spectrum of mental health issues, and yet that was in dorm after dorm after dorm. And at that point in time, they by and large were not in any way segregated from the rest of the population for specific treatment. They were just woven into different parts of the jails and prisons. And I remember asking, you know, what's what's going on here? What is this about? And everyone would say, well, this is how it's always been around the entire country, not unique here, but everywhere. And I got to the breaking point because at that point in time, I had been in the legislature for a while. People, myself, but mostly a lot of other people had really pushed hard on some of these changes. Everyone knew about it, but no one did anything. And in spite of that push, they were actually cutting services, you know, reducing funding, closing mental health hospitals, closing clinics. And so everybody knew the need was there, but yet they chose not to do anything about it other than cut service. So for me, it was like, okay, if you're going to force me to be a mental health hospital, we're going to be the best mental health hospital. And from that point forward, our entire way of viewing what we were doing there was through the prism of mental health. And how is it that we can deflect people so they don't come in here in the first place, but for the ones that are here, how do they get the right treatment they need, and then how do we set them on a path when they leave, that we don't just point them at the door and say, good luck, but we literally, we case manage them to the bitter end. So we've done that, and we've become the gold standard. But the thing I keep telling people over and over again, we shouldn't be doing this. I right. should be out of business, and I'd be happy to be out of business, because jails and prisons are for the criminal justice system, not for people who are sick. And that's what this has become throughout the country. Yeah, I, you know, I'm hearing you say that you were forced into this work, and, and, and I was just about to, to ask you if you think jail is the right place for someone dealing with mental health Oh, my gosh. If you think about this for a second, can you imagine a psychologist or a psychiatrist, any of the above, who, having sat there with an individual with a mental health issue, looked across to them and said, you know what, here's what I'm thinking is going to be your your plan of care. I'm going to put you in a four-by-eight concrete room, um, maybe with somebody else with a completely different issue, maybe not, and I'm going to put you in there for an indeterminate period of time. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of doing here. Oh, nobody would do that. You would hopefully you lose your license immediately, obviously, but no one would suggest that is a way to deal with someone with an illness. But yet that is what people do, and they do it. Seriously, it's out of complete indifference, which to me is as bad as anything else. I mean, sure, no one's firmly saying, let's be horrific and thoughtless to people with an illness, but it's the same net result, and everyone knows that's what's going on here. And as they say, our numbers just keep going up. And then people have suggested to me, it's like, well, Tom, if you keep doing it so well, that's just going to encourage people not to step up to the plate and do what they should do. And I've told them, I go, that is a good point. I, I understand your point there. I go, I don't know what the option is. Do I just stop doing it and treat people horribly? Of course not. But it's not what any thoughtful society would ever suggest is an option. And yet it's our primary option. And so whether it's that or how we deal with the mentally ill on the street, where we have law enforcement intervening who have very little training at all in this area. They, most of the People signed up to be police officers, solve yeah. crimes, and yet their primary function on day-in, day-out basis is showing up at houses dealing with primarily mental health issues. And it's like, once again, what type of society are we? We, we have the data. We show that's what's going on, and yet we think this is a good idea. So you say roughly 50% of the jail's population is dealing with mental illness. What are the greatest needs that you've identified? 
I'll be frank with you, bar none, and this has never changed, the greatest need is housing, 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 because we have an ability to stabilize people, to get people on a pretty good trajectory, but when it comes to leaving, the, the struggles we go through, and I have brought on a lot of civilians to work for me, a lot of people with mental health backgrounds, substance abuse background, case managers, and they spend, I can't tell you how much time working with amazing partners, but at the end of the day, there's just so many housing issues that we come across all the time. As far as the, the treatment side of it, we're doing pretty good there because when we have people with us for any length of time, we can download all the information we have, put a good uh, discharge plan together with them, and we've built these relationships in the community so we can hand people off to existing providers out there. And we also sign people up for insurance and intake so that people who don't have health insurance, we sign them up for it. So we've taken care of some of that, but the housing is so vexing. I cannot tell you how many problems we have with that. Sheriff, how does the pandemic factor into all of this? Um, That has been perplexing, uh, as you can imagine, but the other part of it, it is obviously complicated it because we had this really robust um, group that worked at intake. So whenever anybody was dropped off, we knew we had about two or three hours to really download the information on the person, find out what the issues are, put together a file to give to the court to say, hey, listen, this person is not a criminal. This person has an illness. Please divert the person. But in addition to that, we were able to put together the the workings of a discharge plan, because so many people are coming into the jail now, and rightfully so. Most of them are being given I-bonds or electronic monitoring, so they're leaving quickly. What's happening, though, is that we don't have as much time as we had, and the pandemic has really made that impossible because we can't do face-to-face right now. And so the downloading information so we can put together this really quick discharge plan has been horribly compromised. And then we started all these really novel things. We have a mental health transition center where we treat people who are in custody. We've been doing that since 2014. And that's people with us a little bit longer. So we have more time to work with them, not just on their issues that they may have, but then setting up for the community. But we set up this this community resource center last year uh, with the notion that we'd be handing people off as they came out. But because of COVID, we have to do everything virtual right now. But in spite of that, we still have, we have like a thousand some clients right now in just five months who are people who left the jail, who were guiding through this Byzantine system of how to keep your uh, health insurance, how you can access care, all the rest of it. But yeah. it is just really complicated. It And Sheriff, you created a mental health template for other sheriffs and jail directors to follow. What does that include? You know, really what it does, I'll be honest with you, was starting with the notion, act like you're a hospital. And so what would you do if you were a hospital? Okay, well, first is you're going to obviously treat people with thoughtfulness, um, but you're then going to sit there and try to download as much information as humanly possible to analyze people and to try to find out what is the best plan here. And within that, it's working with families. And so I've been telling people that one of the biggest parts of this is to make sure you're connecting with the family because that ties into the housing component too because for most of the people we're talking about, their options are going back with family. Well, many of these family relationships have been broken. So the template really starts from the beginning when we see people at the front end and having a robust diversion program. So you're trying to keep individuals from coming into custody in the first place. But then once they're in there, they really put together a plan where you treat them like they should be, that they're a patient. And that as a patient, we're working on their medical side of things, their mental health side of it. But then on the other side of it with the family and the community, to try to integrate people back in. And so it's very 
comprehensive, and it really, it really circles around case management to understand that this individual needs a degree of help when they leave and that we're not just going to say goodbye, good luck, but we're going to stick with you. Yeah. And in doing that, we have you know lots of data, some of it's more recent than others, showing that it breaks cycles and it makes it so that people are able to be stabilized in the communities and to be really helpful in, in really a long-term plan here. So that template, we keep tweaking it a little bit, but by and large, it starts with that, that model. What conversations are you having with Mayor Lightfoot about mental uh, health? You know, we've had a very positive relationship in working with the mayor's office. And, you know, I made it clear she was you know, very woven in. Matter of fact, the very first time I met her was at a uh, NAMI um, uh, event where she was getting their Person of the Year award. Um, and I was one of the presenters. And so uh, we met at a mental health event. And so I, I knew this was always important to her. And so we've had conversations about it. And I was always quite clear about the clinics because when the clinics closed, I mean, honestly, if you want to set up a thoughtless decision, that that really has to go right to the top because we kept struggling with the city because at the time we kept asking, I go, what are your metrics? What is it that's leading you to say this is a better route? And we we got literally nothing back, nothing. I was like, okay, can you walk me through how this is going to be helpful? how this is going to be better, how it's going to be anything. And we got nothing. And so we, and then we were, we were seeing it firsthand, to be frank with you. We were, I was talking myself to individuals, and it was really heartbreaking because for many people, you sit there and say, okay, well, they closed the clinics. You'll just go to this site instead. It's when you actually talk to people that you really get the gravity of it. And the, there's one gentleman, I'll never forget talking to him. He was like, you know, Tom, I, used, I had this clinic I went to. And I believe it was the Woodlawn Clinic. I'm not 100% sure now. Mm-hmm. He goes, I've been going there for years. And he goes, I developed this relationship with this one uh, counselor, and we clicked, and things have been working. And he said, now i got to go elsewhere. And he goes, Tom, my transportation issues, he goes, and he wasn't whining. He was just telling he goes, Tom, for me to get there, I have to, he walked me through like three or four different bus transfers. And I'm sitting there saying to myself, for a person going through any level of crisis, is that going to be enough to deter them? And the answer is yes. And so it's like when you see the human face, so you say to yourself, this is just really thoughtless. And there was no transitioning yeah. into it. So the, the, the new mayor's plan, I'm, I, you know, I, you know what I like to see some of the clinics, yeah, but I mean, she's putting tons of money into programs, which I'm very much in favor of. And I'm, you know, yeah. interested and in continue to work with them. They've been phenomenal partners where before it wasn't that type of relationship. Now we, we truly have a partnership relationship where we're working with their Department of Public Health all the time. We're working with them on so many different levels. So wait to see how some of that stuff plays out. But it's definitely not from lack of caring or attention. That's for sure. That's Cook County Sheriff Tom Dart. Sheriff Dart, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Earlier, we talked about Mayor Emanuel's decision to close half of the city's mental health clinics back in 2012. Now, advocates say the move hurt hundreds of at-risk patients and led to more people becoming homeless and ending up in the criminal justice system. Westside residents came together to fill the gap by starting a free mental health clinic. It's called the Encompassing Center, and it opened in 2019. Jennifer Smith is the center's program director. Jennifer, welcome to Reset. Hi, good morning. Give us some more background on the beginning of the Compass Center, Jennifer. How did it all come together? Okay, well, it's a rich story that's really exciting, and it's an enjoyable story to share. And it started based off of just what you said. 
The Coalition to Save Our Mental Health Centers was developed back in 1991 as a response to all the um, impending closures of mental health centers across the city of Chicago, up to like 19 centers. And so they came together to form the expanded West Side Mental Health Program, which is exactly what we're trying to do. Mental health service programming throughout the West Side and also moving towards the South Side as well. And so what happened in 2016 is that the coalition came together through this expanded mental health service program, um, opportunity to say, hey, let's vote and get this approved through a tax referendum to say these money will go towards our mental health centers that can stay in the community, that's a part of the community, that the community has a say-so, and it's meeting the exact needs of the community. And here we are today, 2019, and Compensating Center is the second center to do so, to open like this. Mm -hmm. And we opened our doors October of 2019, and we are here today. And nearly 87% of Westsiders actually voted in favor of that tax hike to fund the center. What does that tell you, Jennifer, about the need for free mental health services here in Chicago? It's a really big need, and it's a need that is often misunderstood. Um, just because of stigma around mental health and that, you know, people want something that's going to be able to stay. And it's not just a mental health center that is here, but a program that can actually stay and sustain itself over time, too. Give us a run through of the services that you provide. Okay, so we have a huge package of services. We provide um, individual counseling services, and that also can include family therapy as well as couples therapy and group therapy. We tried to collaborate a couple of specialty groups. So for example, we had a superhero group for kids over the summer, and then we had a trauma yoga group for adults, for women. And so we also tried to have case management services. So we have two case managers on staff that can help with anything that's non-clinical. So applying for benefits, something simple as an ID, housing resources, things like that. We also have substance use counseling that's on an outpatient basis, mm -hmm. but we can also work with clients to get them into other services that's more higher care needs. So whether it's inpatient hospitalization or rehab services, we can help with that and assess for that. Then we also have other small things that we're doing too, such as mental health first aid training, which is free to the community as well. We're also getting certification to offer anger management classes as well. So any client needing services in that or need to produce a document for court or anything like that, we're able to provide that. And then recently this year um, in March, We've been able to work on a collaboration with Rush University Hospital to have psychiatric services on site as well, to have access to medication and those initial evaluations if someone's never started medication, whether it's for ADHD or depression. Mm -hmm. And then um, other things that we don't think about as far as mental health, you know, things as far as quality of life, or, such as food things like that. So we're having a emergency food pantry too here. So any family that needs a meal for the night can come and get items and then we can link them out to other food sources, whether it's Benefit, SNAP, or getting them to a, a local pantry where they can go weekly if need be. And that's a great variety of services there, Jennifer. What are you seeing as the greatest mental health needs in the area? I want to say 
basic needs and just trust. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I say basic needs because a lot of people don't think of mental health as everything. You know, if someone is going to bed hungry, if someone's not in safe housing, you know, sometimes people go through a multitude of systems, whether it's courts or DCFS or school systems. There's a lot of systems at play that causes mistrust and needing to have a center of people that can help you rebuild that trust and to say, hey, some of the things you've endured, such as trauma, that's a huge word that's going around and a lot of things can be traumatic, you know, whether it's violence, whether it's, you know, childhood abuse or anything that encompasses a lot of things that people could stress about or just COVID-19. That's a huge trauma for all of us. And just adjusting to that is huge. And so we need to look at those things and not think of mental health as something severe, you know, like the stereotype, oh, you have to be crazy. No, mental health is everything from getting good sleep, getting good food, having good relationships, and just getting people to understand that I think is important. And you use words like trauma, you talk about trust. How do you know that that that's an issue? Is, Is this what you're hearing directly from the people that you're serving, or are you looking at data? Where's that coming from? Um, Yes, we're looking at both. We're looking at data and we're looking at what clients are bringing in. So when um, our program came to be, there was a needs assessment that was done prior to the program opening. And some of the top stressors was, again, crime, quality of life, financial issues, and the huge mental health issues that was a concern with depression, substance use, and trauma. And so we try to encompass a lot of our services around that. And then, of course, when clients come in, the clinicians are doing their assessments and utilizing the tools that they have, and they're reaffirming that a lot of these adjustment issues, trauma, you know, witnessing violence are all part of this trauma, you know, trauma lens and trauma issue, and it's showing up in their diagnosis Mm -hmm. when they come through the center. And then clients are often telling their therapist, and it comes filters back to me that, you know, they didn't think they were going to be able to open up in therapy, that they're glad they have someone to talk to, you know, not biased, that's coming from a clear lens, a neutral lens, a loving lens, and, you know, just being safe when they do come. Like, right. it says a lot when a client comes and they've been to the center receiving therapy for over a year. That says a lot, and it's their first time ever receiving services. That's huge for us. And so we try to encourage our clients to utilize all the other services and, you know, tell a friend. Let them know, too, that they can get that same feeling as well and that it's a safe environment. That's Jennifer Smith, Program Director of the Encompassing Center. And we're talking about the free mental health services they provide on the west side of Chicago. Jennifer, how has the pandemic changed the way that you do your work? You know what? It was difficult at first because we've never done this. And I say this as far as telehealth. And any type of program, it's like you make an appointment, you come in, and you have your appointment, and you go home. This changed the trajectory of everything. And so we have to adjust and adapt and get creative. But I think as we all as a society became accustomed to this new normal, we were able to get more creative and grasp more funding for things. So, for example, we were able to get a grant to get Chromebooks to give some clients 
Chromebooks, we were able to use some of the funding to buy unique things such as a sound machine if a client was living in a space where there wasn't privacy, similar to how you would if you went into a therapy office and there's a sound machine to block out the conversations in the room. We were able to do a lot of Zoom groups and do videos and things for other partners and do fun stuff like drop-off art kits and have them have the supplies. So we were able to utilize other platforms such as Zoom and FaceTime and things to reach our clients. Mm -hmm. And we were able to service people through the pandemic, you know, the best way we could, but we were able to still touch lives, which was important. And again, we were keeping up with all of the data and the research by CDC to make sure that once we were safe, we were able to open our doors back open in October of 2020. Mm -hmm. So now we're in a a space where we can do in-person too, because we have all the protocols you need a mask, we have it. We have hand sanitizer. We have taxi guys. We have everything we need to see clients in person and telehealth. And we got something really new just recently, too, what's called a telehealth cart. So say they're therapists or say they need to reach a provider mm-hmm. that is still doing telehealth, they can still come to the center, log in. If they don't have a computer or Internet or a stable Wi-Fi or even a phone, They can still come in and do telehealth services with a different provider in person at the center. So I think that's kind of cool that we're doing a lot of things hybrid as well. So it's been tough, but we've been resilient. So that's good. You've got workarounds to account for lack of Internet connection and technology when it comes to your telehealth services. Do you see this as the way of the future, Jennifer? I do. I'm hoping it stays because it's been so convenient to connect to people when otherwise it could be a barrier. Like someone may not have bus fare or adequate money to get to their appointment when they can go right on their phone and and do their appointment via video. Or you can reach more people and more lives in, in that way digitally. But it's also good to have that human connection, too. So I'm okay with the hybrid as well, because sometimes it's fun to just be in person and have that one-on-one connection, too. This is the second center of its kind. Uh, the first was the Kedzie Center in Albany Park on the northwest side. Can this model work in other parts of the city? I believe so, and the coalition is definitely making it work. I believe that they just passed and got it voted for the south side. So there's going to be a center near the Bronzeville area and some other surrounding neighborhoods. And they're actually moving more south to do the same thing. So the goal is to have this type of programming throughout the city of Chicago, especially on the west side and the south side, where services can be limited. What can other folks, you know, working in this space, so other mental health providers, here and in other cities, what, what can they learn from your approach? I think what they can learn that it is a village effort and it is a community effort. We all have something to give and it's not a competition and that we are all here to service each other and connect and partner with each other because it could be something we don't have that another organization can and we want to partner together and link together and we can do this together. And that's my biggest takeaway is that I've learned so much about community and partnership through this program than anything else. And so I'm hoping that other cities and communities can see that and see how successful this program is doing, that they can do it in their own cities. Well, you're doing a lot of work. So 
the natural question here is how can we help you? What do you need to be able to expand your reach? Just spreading the word and letting people know that this is something that is theirs. I think when people feel a sense of ownership, they can always call and give us ideas. They can always let us know what they need. And I say us as the community and not just the four communities we serve, but other communities outside of us, because we never know how we can help people. That's even outside of our boundaries too. And letting them know that we're there. And again, it's all about trust and safety and just having those hard conversations. Talking about trauma, talking about trust can be difficult, but I think once we allow those safe spaces for that to occur, I think we're already one step ahead. And let's remember, this is a conversation about mental health. So, Jennifer, Mm -hmm. what are you doing to take care of yourself while you're taking care of other people? Oh, yes. I am a therapist by trade, too. So I'm a clinical professional counselor, and I believe in therapy. Like, I make sure I have access to a therapist. I ensure that I'm taking care of my own health making sure I exercise, making sure I'm sleeping, eating well myself, making sure I'm spending time with family and friends, because I have to be okay. I always use the analogy that they tell us with the airplane, you have to put the mask on first before you can, like, help anybody else in an emergency situation. And if I'm not the example, you know, I'm being a hypocrite. Like, I can't push for mental health. And I'm not reading self-help books. I'm not getting enough sleep or eating well myself. And so I try to do all those things because I got to have the best energy possible to be able to push and help my clients push, help the center push, my staff, you know, just be present in the community as well. So I have to do those things as well. Well, that's really good to hear. That's Jennifer Smith, Program Director at the Encompassing Center on the West Side. Jennifer, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's today's Reset. Come back each afternoon this week for more from our series Closing the Gap as we focus on access to mental health services. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow.